This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, a leading game developer providing player favorites to the most successful brands across the industry. With an award-winning multi-product portfolio of slots, live casino, bingo, virtual sports, and more, Pragmatic Play is powering up new possibilities of play through one single API. Visit pragmaticplay.com and discover your favorite every time. The Vested Interest episode number three. Uh, really excited uh, today, of course. Uh, we have so much to talk about. Uh, Benji, Lloyd, and special guest uh, Jeffrey House is uh, joining us today. Uh, but as a starting point, uh, Jeff, um, uh, you know, great to have you uh, with us here. How's uh, everything going on your side? You're a free agent now, uh, passed at the DraftKings, of course, uh, but uh, a free bird. How does that feel? Uh, it feels great, you know, not subject to any non-competition agreements or other restrictive covenants following a oh. period of employment, uh, which basically means I can go do whatever I want, which is awesome. <laughs> Exciting stuff, uh, guys. And, you know, let's jump uh, straight into it here. You know, we, we, we have obviously breaking news that came today at the time of this recording, which is, uh, of course, that ESPN uh, has signed a license agreement together with uh, Penn uh, worth almost $2 billion uh, that stretches over uh, two years. Um, uh, we, we've all read the story, of course. Uh, it's huge news. Um, uh, it, it was rumored uh, a couple of uh, months ago, like nine months ago, that uh, DraftKings were about to sign this agreement uh, with uh, ESPN worth $3 billion, but uh, that seemingly fell through. Uh, and now, of course, uh, Penn has signed this agreement. So, uh, Benji, perhaps starting with you, um, can you give a bit more context to this story and um, what's your just initial thoughts here? First off, we, we see some uh, adherence to market realities here. It was three billion nine months ago. It's two billion today. So speaking to some of some of the sign of the times. But look, from Penn's perspective, you know they're they're trading one partner for another from a branding perspective. You go from Barstool to ESPN. ESPN's obviously a huge upgrade. You look at it from a pen perspective, they're now close to $5 billion in on their digital spend, I guess $4.5 billion in. And, and I think most of us would surmise that the, the initial $2.5 billion may not have been the optimal spend when you consider the dollar amounts. And many surmise that they overpaid for the, the, the score deal. I, I certainly would. Um, time will tell. Certainly, I think having ESPN as a branding partner will be an upgrade from Barstool. Will it be worthy of the $2 billion investment? I think time will tell. Right, and, and I would add you know, when I, that you know. Yeah, go ahead, Luke. Oh yeah, go I'm just going to say first of all, all-time great trade for Dave Portnoy selling a company for over 500 <laughs> million, buying it back for essentially zero. Nothing. Uh, just a few years later, and you know, some non-competes and restrictive covenants, uh, and, and all that. As Benji mentioned, certainly an upgrade. <clears throat> I would add that beyond the market deteriorating, in theory, every day that goes by since the repeal of PASPA makes a potential ESPN deal slightly less attractive, in my view, because that's every day that ESPN betting-inclined users are signing up for DraftKings and FanDuel, and more importantly, developing behavioral habits that will be hard to break. So I'd argue that even without market deterioration, it makes sense to pay less today than nine months ago and less nine months ago than, than nine months before that. Uh, and the other, you know, one of my, my primary thoughts here are, you know, what, what will customer acquisition differentiation really look like for Penn? And what I think would really make this a step function change in their trajectory is it seems there's a decent likelihood that ESPN might get spun off into a direct-to-consumer standalone app and platform where you just pay a monthly fee 
to have access to ESPN. There's even a small chance, it appears, that ESPN might lead some sort of joint venture with a whole bunch of other sports content providers, aggregate together the ultimate bundle of sports programming, and offer that on an a la carte, month-by-month basis. And if that is the case, and Penn says to their customers, if you keep an account with us, you get ESPN for free, or if you bet $10 a month, you get access to all of this for free, that I do think could be a, a really significant catalyst toward customer acquisition differentiation that others would have a hard time competing with. So over the longer term, that's the big thing I have my eye on is can Penn subsidize consumers' access to ESPN and other premium sports content that can't be found elsewhere? Right. I mean, now we are talking about uh, like a potential like killer app here with um, uh, with Penn definitely differentiate them, themselves in a, in an operator market that is becoming more and more commoditized. Uh, uh, right. The product is uh, fairly similar to each other b- between the operators. Uh, Jeff, I mean, um, as an ex DraftKings uh, um, employee here of many years, uh, how do you see this deal? And um, do, you th- do, you, do you see it positively, negatively? Is this a good thing, bad thing for Penn? Uh, first, just to comment on what Lloyd said, I mean, you're really looking at bending light with those comments, uh, you know, seeing around a lot of corners. It'll be very curious to see if that's how things materialize, because I agree with you that the value proposition on that could be really strong. Um, Pierre, uh, just to be clear, I don't speak for DraftKings. Um, I don't represent them at all. Um, I think that uh, this deal is probably one that DraftKings turned down, uh, certainly at a three billion price point and probably at a 1.5 price point. Uh, you know, ESPN as a acquisition funnel for sports betters is a constant, but probably has diminished in its overall value after years of having promoted sports books. Uh, so um, I feel that you know the DraftKings team are probably fine with it. You know, short term, of course, the share price has come down, but I imagine they'll come back. You know, stronger than ever as a result of what they're working on. So, you know, overall, pretty good outcome uh, for uh, DK in the long term. It just creates another big potential competitor in the marketplace. Uh, but you know, uh, Penn have not outperformed in respect to the value creation from their digital investments to date. I know the score is a significant step up from their previous technology. Uh, but what happens on week one of NFL uh, if they can't uh, stay live during a crushing amount of traffic? You know, a lot will be told about this story over the next four or five weeks. And I, I you know, it's a great point, Jeff. But I think that uh, also in adding to some of your comments regarding, you know, um, the 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 DraftKings piece. Sorry, we have to pause there, guys. I lost my thought. Apologies, Pierre. Oh, that's all right. I'll take. I'll mark the uh, first, mark the clip. First time doing that uh, in four episodes. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. I'm not the only one. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm not the only one. Sure. Uh, feel free to restart, Ben. Yeah, we we will edit it so I'll, I'll, so you'll I'll, I'll you'll reply to it. I'll come back in a minute. No, go ahead. Uh, okay, so 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 uh, so Jeff, that's uh, interesting uh, for sure. You mentioned the stock price uh, here, and um, as as you point out here, in the, in the time of the recording, DraftKings is down nine percent uh, right now on the on the stock market, whereas the pen is up uh, about eight uh, percent. So uh, you can see a clear difference there in how shareholders are reacting to this news. Uh, but um, Lloyd, if uh, if if you were a public market investor. Um, which uh, stock would you buy today uh, with this response from the shareholders? Would you buy Penn um, at the moment that is up 7% or would you buy DraftKings that is down 9% on this news? From a purely expected value and market dislocation standpoint, without any respect to 
fundamental analysis of the businesses. Uh, it seems askew to me that DraftKings should be down so much. It reminds me of the times going into the pandemic when the NFL would announce that they were canceling or postponing a game and DraftKings stock price would drop 10% as if that really was going to decrease their future cash flows on a net present value basis by anything even close to 10%. Uh, so again, not saying anything about the underlying quality of the companies, but on a short-term basis, there doesn't seem to be any real rationale why DraftKings should be down as much as it should be. Uh, and this probably will either be proven right or wrong by the time this podcast is released. But all other things equal, one would think there's some sort of mean reversion that has to take place and that DraftKings is being a bit irrationally undervalued by people who are overly reactionary or perhaps not properly understanding the news. I'm, I'm with you, Lloyd. Public. Sorry, Jeff. I'm with you, Lloyd, on that. And, and you know, to Jeff's point earlier in regards to, uh, to you know, to, to DraftKings not necessarily being overly concerned because they walked away from this deal. I think when you look at this transaction in terms of the 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 Penn situation, you know, I think that, you know, with both parties, it's almost like a bridesmaid type of deal. I don't think this was like an, a perfect marriage for either party where it was their intended desired partner initially and the perfect situation. I think it's more a scenario where, you know, the DraftKings deal didn't work out. Um, they looked at all of their other options, and, and from an ESPN perspective, Penn was the only uh, suitor that was available at a reasonable price point. And I think from a Penn perspective, you look at the deal and, you know, some of the things that they were working on in digital spend, again, as Jeff alludes to, maybe didn't work out as well as they'd like, and, and this became the best upgrade opportunity for them. But kind of a marriage, not necessarily of ideal, but almost like a bridesmaid situation where it's your second choice. Yeah, from a public markets perspective, I would argue that the real winners here are the affiliates, you know, the major companies there, because this has the potential to disrupt what has been an increasingly more rational uh, environment for customer acquisition. You know, we could end up seeing, you know, another at least short term arms race over the first few weeks of NFL. I mean, what are CPAs going to look like? But but is is that actually the case? I mean, ESPN bet presumably will uh, will source their customer acquisition through ESPN channels primarily. Um, do you not think that uh, players entering the ecosystem um, through the affiliate channels wouldn't end up actually hurting the affiliates? The fact that uh, ESPN will be able to do acquisition straight without affiliation. Uh, if they've been working on this properly over the last six months while they're working on getting the paperwork done and making the announcement and they come out with all guns blazing, then sure. Will that be the case? Let's see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you would assume that in, in the market that this is part of the strategy, again, that, uh, that they are not necessarily looking to, uh, to spend more money on affiliation with, when they are paying $1.5 billion for ESPN, the ESPN licensing and, uh, and everything that comes with that. I, I, I think it seems pretty straightforward, no? Yeah, nothing surprises me about M&A preparation. <laughs> right, fair or, enough. Or lack thereof. <laughs> or lack thereof. Uh, I mean, another part of the, uh, of the deal, of course, is uh, that um, uh, Penn is, um, is giving uh, Disney the option to buy, I think it's almost up to 30% uh, of, uh, of, of, of Penn um, as a company. Um, in a 10-year in a deal. So they're obviously giving away a, potentially a significant portion of, uh, of, um, of their equity. Um, what's, the, what's the reaction to giving away so much equity on kind of standing and falling on, on this one, uh, one deal? Is it, um, is, is, is it benefiting kind of Disney more than benefiting uh, Pan? Uh, any thoughts in general on, on this like huge uh, stock options that is being given away here? Perhaps Benji, if you want to start. 
Yeah, look, I mean, there's a benefit one more versus the other. You know, I think it's a situation where, you know, from an, from an ESPN perspective, you know, it comes back a little bit to what some of the Lloyd's commentary was earlier. If they're going to be, you know, uh, if they're going to be pursuing a strategy, which they should be, where they become more digitally focused and they feel that the pen asset fits well into that strategy, more so on a long-term basis and on a two-year basis, then, then ownership uh, from their perspective seems to make a lot of sense is how I would categorize it. And having as much of that company as possible uh, within this deal makes sense based on that strategy. So part of it is skating to where the puck is going, what bit as Lloyd alluded to in terms of what ESPN's digital strategy is and, and where Penn would fit in within that. Yeah, I think Disney uh, is a much bigger winner here than Penn. 150 million a year, sustainable over 10 years, uh, in order to uh, have a guarantee on uh, sending out uh, traffic for sports betting, uh, is a very expensive uh, proposition. You know, and realizing value on that is going to be hard. And then from there, cross-selling them into iGaming, where they're actually going to have a chance uh, to recoup, is also going to be a challenge. Uh, requires a lot of execution, better products than I've seen uh, in the legacy landscape. Uh, but, you know, let's see where they end up coming from here. Uh, the other interesting point is, you know, maybe they take 30% of Penn. They still own, what, 5 or 6% of DraftKings. That makes Mickey Mouse one of the biggest right. sports <laughs> books in uh, America. <laughs> MickeyMouseBet.com eventually. Who knows? Oh, they argue my side. Um, I, I, well, what they should do is ESPN Bet and then Mickey Mouse Casino. Exactly. I casino and sports, but uh, exactly separate the brands. Um, I mean, speaking speaking of that, uh, you know, Penn has outlined kind of the targets that they are that they are uh, looking to achieve with this deal, and um, they are they are outlining a plan to reach one billion dollar EBITDA by twenty twenty seven, uh, and reach a twenty percent market share on online sports betting and sixteen percent uh, market share on online uh, casino uh, share. So these are very aggressive targets that they have outlined uh, here, of course, considering where they are uh, today. Is this is these targets realistic? I mean, is, is ESPN going to tilt the scale that much in their favor that they can achieve this type of market share only because of this uh, brand? Lloyd? Uh, I don't know if I have thoughts on, on specific numbers like that. There are, you know, investment bankers and equity research analysts better positioned than me to, to opine specifically. Uh, I think it comes back a, a bit to what I said before. Uh, if this is simply a customer acquisition channel that will result in some extra logo placement and display banner ads, uh, probably not. But if Penn uniquely leverages the one-of-a-kind asset that ESPN is, perhaps in the way I described before, by subsidizing access to some sort of subscription video on-demand package, perhaps by integrating uh, betting opportunities into live streams on the ESPN app and, and doing all sorts of interesting product innovations that, that one could be uniquely positioned to execute on in a partnership with ESPN. That's what I think it takes to achieve any sort of outsized EBITDA or profitability targets. Uh, I do not think this deal will be a win uh, for Penn if, if it's simply about you know banner ads and logo placement. And I, I certainly doubt that it is. I'm sure there are many people internally who have much loftier aspirations and are working quite diligently talking to potential M&A and white label partners that, that can help bring something truly unique to the table. I think whether they hit those targets also, Pierre, depends on when California opens, when Texas opens, what's, when they go into New York, et cetera, et cetera, when Penn goes into New York. Yeah, right, right. Uh, 
Yeah, Penn, they have some super smart people working in that business. And clearly the board have given their approval on this transformative deal. And so ultimately it comes down to execution. I love Lloyd's ideas. They should just take all of those. But also, you know, what are they going to do <laughs> points of presence, you know, retail sports books on the site uh, with the casinos, you know, ESPN bet. Will they consider having live broadcast studios in and around those sports books, integrated live gaming next door? I mean, really, it requires, you know, rabid ideation and a lot of creativity and smart people coming out there. And, you know, a moment of introspection to find out why they overpaid so dramatically for all of their previous digital assets and what they're going to do different this time. You know, if they're having an honest conversation internally about how to improve upon historical results, you know, they have a chance. But 20% market share seems incredibly unrealistic and improbable, particularly given, you know, bet 365, you know, moving more aggressively and fanatics who will do their best and we'll see how it goes. But I think there's a very low probability they hit that market share uh, target, but uh, EBITDA, who knows? And it's a good point, Jeff, because you talk about Bet365, all of their competitors are moving at lightning speed, right? And, you know, here they are, they're in the thick of it. You know, they've, they're still working through from a technology standpoint, bringing to life that new platform that they brought in from the score and all the challenges that come with it that we'll see come to light this football season potentially and, you know, integration of new product that can augment their deliverable and, and, and help them stand out in some capacity. You know, one would surmise that the ESPN folks, while big picture guys may not understand the intricacies of, of those aspects of this transaction and where, where the product lies from the sports standpoint on the product and technology side. And there's just a lot of challenges to work through short term operationally, completely independent of anything that goes on in terms of the ESPN partnership and how they monetize that. Agreed. What will be also really interesting is there is that third license available in Connecticut now if partnering with a lottery. You know, ESPN based in Connecticut, you know, are surrounded by DraftKings and FanDuel advertising. If they can get that license, I think that creates a really interesting focal point for them. It's a great point. Very interesting to know, as Jeff alluded to. I think these are some of the two things I'm watching. What happens to that third Connecticut license and what happens to Disney's uh, stake in DraftKings? Uh, not necessarily consequential to uh, you know some of the other factors we're talking about, but really interesting dynamics that I am incredibly curious to see how they play out. But what was the background there, Jeff? Uh, do you know Do you know why uh, Disney invested in DraftKings in the first place? I used to I, I know that DraftKings used to have an exclusive agreement on advertisement on ESPN back in the uh, uh, fantasy sportsbook days. Is that um, uh, is, is that uh, why DraftKings decided to invest? Oh, sorry, My why Disney decided to invest? Yeah, um, I would say subject to fact checking, but my recollection is that uh, it was a media for equity deal in respect to DFS uh, for uh, an older media property acquired by ESPN or Disney during some of the restructuring, and uh, they chose to maintain that shareholding over time. Interesting. So, um, so let's move on. Um, now, really interesting here with Penn, of course, and um, I think the summary of this seems to be that. Uh, um, depending on what they do with the product, not only the customer acquisition uh, is, gonna, is what's going to kind of tip the scale in or uh, against uh, Penn's favor. Are they going to uh, take Lloyd's idea to heart uh, and integrate potentially ESPN Plus, let's say, uh, within ESPN Bet uh, against turnover requirements or something like that? Because then they have an incredible proposition uh, when it comes to product. Uh, otherwise, they are left with only the um, acquisition th funnel, but maybe the players are not going to stick around 
around to a subpar uh, uh, product, basically. So re- really interesting to follow that. Uh, you know, going on to to the next point, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, quarterly reports uh, landed now, pretty much all of them, except for Entain um, and and uh, BetMGM. However, even BetMGM have um, uh, have released some numbers through uh, the parent brand, of course, which is uh, MGM. And um, what we've seen now is uh, basically online sports betting in the US turning the corner. All of the major tier one operators, except for Penn, ironically enough, or not, uh, is now profitable in Q2 2023. Uh, that includes FanDuel, DraftKings, Caesars, uh, BetMGM, and um, RSI. Uh, all the showing EBITDA positivity in Q2 uh, of 2023, uh, except then for Pan that uh, made a made a small EBITDA loss, uh, although they are close to 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 break even there. Um, so kind of leave it open open a little bit, uh, Benji. Perhaps starting on your side, you know, looking at uh, the reporting season here so far, uh, and the industry turning the corner. Um, what's your like general feeling here now as we go forward is there anything that stands out in the individual companies uh, to you in these reports um and do you feel that there is a change of sentiment now the industry has proven itself uh what's what's your thoughts well i think i'll start with kind of like the big macro trend within all this which is it's ironic or you know it's interesting to me that that all this happens in q2 of 2023 which kind of represents the turning point of the five-year anniversary of the PASPA repeal. And the first five years were fraught with, while there's some credible highs and lows as it pertains to market dynamics, just a whole lot of spend and a a whole lot of losses, uh, understandably, to get where we are. And what those companies were preaching at that time were now seeing come to fruition. What they were preaching is, you know, we're, we're investing today for a future which will arrive tomorrow. And tomorrow is now arriving that we've reached the five year mark and we turn the corner and we see all of these companies achieve profitability for the quarter for Q2 2023. And, and it speaks to rosier times ahead in 2024 and beyond. So from a big picture macro perspective, I think it's really interesting to look at it from that first five year dynamic shifting into that next five year dynamic from a timing perspective. Right, and it feels almost like um, you know if we back up the tape a year ago, which is um, kind of almost like the low point of the industry. In in just a year's time, the sentiment has changed from investors kind of turning their back against the industry. Uh, obviously, we saw the low points in in DraftKings share price, uh, we, for example, which have um, more than tripled since uh, since then. Uh, and and now, of course, the investors are um, uh, are showing much more positive uh, sentiment uh, here. Is is this surprising that profitability came kind of this early? Let's say in the in the qu- in this quarter uh, to to you guys, because um, obviously many of the uh, Operators have um, communicated um, a year or two ago that they would uh, turn pro- uh, profitable in in like kind of like second half of 2023 or 2023 as a as a year. But now that it actually came true, it seems almost like investors are surprised that this uh, happened. Um, again, do 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 you guys see this as um, a surprising turning point that is happening now, uh, Lloyd? Perhaps if you want to start, and also feel free, uh, you know, are, are there any other kind of bullet points or any interesting things that you picked up? from uh, the reporting season so far? Um, I I don't think it's terribly uh, surprising, not that I would have necessarily predicted this exact moment in time uh, five years ago, but uh, first of all, Jason Robbins and the team have been saying on every single quarterly earnings call since 2019, guys, we have the data, we have a playbook, we're analyzing our CAC to LTV, and we're going to get paid back on our customers in about 
two to three years in each state in which we go live. Give us time to make that happen, and you'll see we're going to make it happen. Look back at the previous projections we've made. We've hit all of those targets. And so if you ask the guys at DraftKings, they'll probably say, we've been telling the same story this whole time. It is investor sentiment and the broader market that has been much more volatile. And I also think these things are, are deeply related. In 2020, 2021, a lot of investors piled into the space, probably who didn't truly understand what it was they were underwriting. Everyone was piling into growth assets without much regard for current profitability. As the market started to turn, suddenly in every industry, investors were saying, wait a second, we need to see direct paths to sustainable free cash flow generation to keep underwriting these companies. And I think public company management teams took those indications to heart uh, and probably accelerated the rationalization of marketing spend and focus on unit economics. And in part, we're seeing that uh, all, all come to bear now. So not terribly surprising. I think it's a, a pleasant upside surprise. DraftKings had really lofty expectations and analyst consensus estimates that they blew by. Uh, and, and just to touch upon the other point you asked as you turned it over to me, in terms of anything interesting, again, not necessarily surprising, what do all the operators now, and even including Genius, who had solid uh, uh, earnings on, on the B2B side, what are they all reporting? Higher structural hold rates, higher parlay mix average, more average legs in each parlay, higher percentage of handle uh, composed by parlays and micro bets and other high margin products. And so I think we're now also starting to see product differentiation, most of which, frankly, has been supplied by startups and early stage companies making its way through, bringing this industry into the 21st century, modernizing the experience for the younger instant gratification seeking customer. And that's resulting in higher ARPU numbers and, and higher margin rates. Yeah, Lloyd, that was exceptionally well said, sir. Uh, kudos on that. Um, agree with all of that. I would add two things. One in respect to Benji talking about the five-year anniversary of uh, sports betting in America, of legal regulated, locally regulated sports betting in America. But it's also the 10-year anniversary for iGaming in New Jersey. And you look at the companies that are profitable today and leading today and all the revenue being generated from iGaming. I mean, that has to do with, you know, Borgata uh, and Boyd, you know, launching their first online casino uh, and Golden Nugget going in as well. You know, and Thomas Winter, who led Golden Nugget and built that into a Leviathan uh, for online casino in New Jersey. You know, that's now part of DraftKings. And, you know, one of the things that surprised me maybe didn't surprise me, but impressed me was slide seven of the DraftKings quarterly results, where they talk about what they're doing to differentiate iGaming and how they're leading. You know, they've just launched or are about to launch their new uh, live casino product. Uh, and they're doing a lot of really interesting things. I mean, you know, we talk about Sportsbook because it's sexy, uh, but what is propelling a lot of these businesses is their success around iGaming uh, and, and Tain and Flutter and DraftKings uh, and Rush to a certain extent, you know, are really outperforming there by, you know, focusing on operation, operational excellence. And I think, and again, when we bounce back to Penn and uh, Disney, that deal, you know, are they going to have uh, hold a candle to that? Because, again, they're so focused on sports betting. You know, what's really happening underneath that, which is going to propel them towards their EBITDA targets? Right. They, they communicate the 16% uh, market share on the iGaming side, even though, as you point out here, Jeff, ESPN is a heavily tilted sports betting uh, brand. Uh, something else to take note of in the quarterly report, actually, is something a bit funny. Um, 
both DraftKings and BetMGM are reporting that they are the leaders in uh, in market share in on the iGaming side, which is which is quite interesting. And the the way they outline the competition is completely different from each other. And even even FanDuel is uh, reporting much higher. Um, market share on the argument side that, than what um, BetMGM is uh, assuming that FanDuel has, for example. So there's a little bit of confusion there, who is actually the market leader. Um, I don't know what numbers you guys have seen, but uh, is, there a, is there any way to figure out what is the actual answer here? Can we believe BetMGM? Should we believe DraftKings? Who are the leaders today um, in argument? Yes. Yeah, I think you need to look at the regulatory landscape and who is live where, you know, because DraftKings and Flutter are live in Connecticut uh, right. and, and Tain isn't. Uh, so they're all going to use the fine print to say we're leading in the markets where we're live. You know, DraftKings are also live in two states on a monopoly basis, uh, but not live in Nevada where and Tain are to a certain extent. So, you know, it just it, it, isn't, it isn't apples to apples, which allows everybody to say they're number one. And the other this answer. is why it's often said that, uh, you know, the greatest lies are told in Microsoft Excel, not in Word or PowerPoint, <laughs> uh, because of exactly the finessing uh, that, that Jeff's referring to over there. And, and look, that's an evolving story. Does it really matter who the leader is today? You've got a handful of states that are offering iGaming. It's going to be a much bigger part of the equation in the years ahead as gradually we see more and more acceptance of it. It'll be interesting to see, you know, Lloyd, you alluded to a little bit earlier, you know, uh, some of these... Uh, uh, startup companies that came in with some product innovation that's geared more to that next generation of betters and some of that product making its way in and as those sportsbook products continue to evolve and improve and, and, and how that will play in in terms of investor sentiments but also on the iGaming side we're still early days there where will the innovation come from on that side and how will that play into the overall story going forward so a lot of interesting dynamics yeah. as we look at uh uh, the upcoming quarterly reports, which one would surmise will continue to get rosier and rosier. And I think the other question within all that is, you know, where will that impact investor sentiment and how will that impact the return of not just, uh, you know, smaller to mid-sized VCs and or angel investors like uh, like myself and Jeff, but, but, but some of the other venture capital and private equity and whether or not that will make its way back into the space as they see the proof of unit economics playing out in, in quarterly reports that come forward. And I would just add a quick point, you know, about startup-led innovation. It's funny. At this point, and I know there's a lot of founders who, who listen to this podcast, you know, people talk about SimpleBet as if they just obviously are building a product that everyone wants and needs. But I'm telling you, in the early days of SimpleBet, when it was operating in Joey's one-bedroom apartment in New York City, I cannot tell you, and I think Benji knows this too, how many people who said they were, you know, the world's leading experts in sports betting and who built businesses in sports betting in Europe for 20 years – said there was no chance anyone wanted micro betting. There was never going to be any interest in it. No one was going to bet over these short durations. It was not going to happen. People with all the confidence and gravitas in the world just completely dismissed everything Simple Bet was trying to build. And that is often the story of you know people who build what end up being really transformative businesses is that uh, until you actually break through, there's going to be a tons of people dismissing you and, and saying it's not going to happen. And uh, you know, the onus is on you and certainly Simple Bet has succeeded in this regard in showing that your vision really does have merit. And if you understand the consumer, you can bring something unique to market. Yeah, agree. Uh, what's also interesting, Dark Horse uh, in the race, which we haven't talked about, and I don't really see people talking about very much, is Bally's. You know, I know they remarkably underperformed to date, but they own GameSys. 
And GameSys are one of the world's leaders in respect to online casino. Uh, and once they get more organized and start executing at a higher level, I mean, they could be doing some really interesting stuff in America, too. I agree. Any, anyone who knows Sue Kim will tell you he is a really progressive, forward-thinking, out-of-the-box kind of guy. Uh, and perhaps the operational aptitude of the organization and maybe some of the specific corporate development decisions have not quite gone as planned and could have been tactically reimagined in retrospect. But I do think it's a great point. you got a strong executive team, a lot of funding behind it, a long time in the industry. No one is really talking about Bally's uh, today uh, at all. Fair, fair point. And if you look at a few of their missteps in the early days, which were probably a quarter billion dollar totals worth of missteps, <laughs> we have to hope that for Bally's it's, that the, the, the axiom, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, certainly holds true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to hurt. And, and, and Lloyd, to your point here about simple, but uh, earlier, uh, you know, it's typical uh, uh, pretentious uh, Europeans here. Don't listen too too much to uh, to what we say. Uh, unfortunately, jo Joey uh, understands us as well. Uh, but we're going to stay in the startup uh, landscape uh, a bit now. The, the, the time is working away from us here today. And Lloyd, you know, you brought up this point uh, that you uh, wanted to talk about today, which I think is absolutely excellent. You know, as a startup founder, I'm going to like sit back and enjoy this conversation a bit because we have three excellent investors uh, here today. And, um, you know, uh, Lloyd, you wanted to talk a little bit about kind of from an investment point of view. You sit um, in a lot of interviews uh, and uh, calls with um, uh, with startup founders who are trying to pitch your ideas to uh, their ideas to you. Um, and. Uh, you have picked up on on like a couple of like reoccurring kind of like mistakes they do or let's say lies that they tell the investors uh, which obviously is a massive turn off uh, for, for an investor to to hear can you talk a little bit more give a little bit more background to this topic and uh, can you start off here uh, kind of, of, of uh, what discussions you have with investors that you don't like? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of coverage of the startup and venture capital space, but very little of the the dance that takes place in private between founders and investors when negotiating and pitching an investment. And uh, this topic was inspired by a talk that a venture capitalist named Bill Reichert gave at Stanford Business School in 2009 that is definitely available on YouTube and I'd highly recommend. And it, it describes the top lies that founders often tell VCs. And the word lie is not meant in an accusatory manner. It's meant to describe the fact that on the one hand, founders know they have to be really enthusiastic and ambitious and confident uh, and show investors they can produce outsized returns. And on the other hand, investors want to see someone who's grounded in reality and, and has credibility. And between those two tension points, sometimes in the middle ground, I do see founders misstep or stretch the truth, even if inadvertently in ways that I think is counterproductive. And there are many different common examples of this. I'll kick off with one. And I bet as soon as I do, Jeff and Benji will laugh and say they've seen the same things over and over again and we'll have theirs. I think one of the most common, you know, quote, lies that, that I hear from, from founders is we have no competition. We're the only ones doing this. <laughs> and the reason that I think ends up being counterproductive is that, first of all, if it is true, if you really are doing something no one else has ever done, you either are one of the smartest people in the entire world or you probably are pursuing an idea that's not worth pursuing, and that's why you're the only one doing it. The most successful companies you've ever heard of were not the ones who invented their business model. Facebook was not the first social network. Google was not the first search engine. Uber was not the first ride-hailing platform. They were just the first one to reach critical mass when everyone had GPS-enabled phones in their pocket, uh, et cetera. Sometimes what I see founders do is they narrow the scope of their business so much as to be insignificant. If someone says to me, 
We're the only Web3 online sportsbook catering to senior citizens in Alaska who want to bet on competitive ice fishing. Uh, that may well be true, <laughs> but it's not really valuable that it is the case that you're the only one doing that. And then that leaves what is often the case is that in reality, the company just didn't do proper research on you know their competitive set. And, and of course, that is not good for credibility. And I won't name a company specifically, but I was talking to one not too long ago who was pitching me on a particular idea. Uh, and I asked about their competitors. They said they had none. They had a slide with four quadrants. They were up on the top right. There was no one else near them. And it turned out not only were there many competitors, the market leading competitor had the same name and the same slogan as they did. They had not even Googled <laughs> their own company name or slogan. And so uh, I know people want to tell investors they don't have competition. They feel like it strengthens the case. But th I have many more. Uh, and I'm sure, again, both Benji and Jeff have seen exactly that one I described. Before going into others, I'll, I'll let the other guys get a, a word in edgewise here. But that's the type of example I was referring to and the type of thing founders say often that they might not realize actually is, is counterproductive to their efforts. But Bendy, that, take it away. First of all, that was a good one, Lloyd. I mean, uh, and I do hear it all the time. And it's a no-win situation, to your point. If no one's doing what you're doing, it's probably not worth doing. No one's doing it for a reason. And, and of course, someone else is doing something just like it or very similar. I think one of the ones that I often hear, and to your point also, Lloyd, it's not so much lying. It's a bit more their vision of the world and not being as expanded as, expanded as it can be or a bit of naivete. And, you know, I often hear along the lines from folks that are, are pitching ideas, you know, we're, we're in the process of signing a deal with, with, with DraftKings or FanDuel or, or Genius or Radar on the B2B distribution. And, you know, look, we have channels where we can double check how close they actually are. And, you know, having had a conversation with a mid-level manager within the ranks of one of those organizations doesn't necessarily categorize as close. I guess one's definition of close can vary depending on your view of, of matters. But, you know, in many instances, not only is this signing not imminent, it's not even uh, past the introductory or mid-manager level. And then you have other instances where, where a deal may very well be in the works with, you know, on the B2B side with a supplier, but at really, really onerous terms. And, you know, sometimes uh, the way in which those things are being positioned could be categorized in a little bit more of a, uh, I don't want to say a more a more uh, transparent manner, um, but you got to use a grain of salt in terms of how you present how close you are with some of these opportunities is what I would find in, in oftentimes in conversations with with founders who are somewhere along the line in their business uh, objectives. Yeah, I hear that one all the time as well. Oh, we just talked to so and so at DraftKings. They're thinking of buying us. Oh, I just got off the phone <laughs> with Benji Cherniak. He's planning on investing. Obviously, I'm going to text Benji as soon as you say that and, and ask. And sometimes Benji says, oh, yeah, like those guys are awesome. I am investing. Let's have a call. Uh, but other times, you know, something quite different is the case. And well, some, I think one time I, I think one time I replied, which company was that? I'm not even sure if I'd heard of that. Right. Right. And I should mention, <laughs> even when you're not talking to insiders who have this connectivity, a venture capital and even angel investment takes quite a while to negotiate and close. If you tell an investor you're going to do something 15 days from now, and you're not going to close the round within 15 days, you better hope that you actually achieve that milestone by the time you come asking uh, for signatures and wire transfers. So again, I think a, a lot of self-inflicted in errors that I often see come from this exact variety that, uh, that Benji mentioned. I mean, just as a, from, from the other side of the fence, uh, preparing a pitch deck uh, as a startup founder and preparing your pitch to investors, there's like um, a little bit pressure there to stand out in some way, because um, we would assume that you will get 100 pitch decks a week, let's say. And how do you get even the call or how do you find the interest there? Um, 
so uh, I don't know. Is there is there like something to bending the truth um, ethically in some way, or should you uh, should you be straightforward from from day one, lay out the, the the lines, or should you try to kind of tell the most interesting story within reason? Let's say, Bendy. Look, I'm a. My view is how do you get the interest? Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, it's 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 a delicate uh, answer, but for me, it comes down to transparency. You know, if I'm dealing with an entrepreneur, you know, it's all about it's it's of course it's about the idea and what they're trying to do and how they're going to do it. But it's also about the entrepreneur themselves, and it's about them and their integrity. And you know, I think that if they're coming out and and coming to you with forecasts that are unrealistic, versus coming out and saying. Look, uh, you're asking me for some sort of forecast. We all know it's my best guess, but we don't know what the future will hold in terms of sales. I'd rather hear the transparent and truthful answer than 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 something which is geared towards what they think I might want to hear. But we can typically read through that. So for me, the more transparent uh, I, I believe a founder is, the more that I'm going to hold them in high regard, and the more likely I am going to be the one to align with them in some capacity and helping them in their journey. But, but a quick question here: Do you do you do you assume when you see a forecast, any forecast, that it's exaggerated? I do absolutely. And look, there's a bit of like a game that gets played. The first entrepreneur ever probably did put conservative projections forward, and the first <laughs> investor ever probably believed them. But then that entrepreneur missed those projections, and the investor realized, okay, I have to discount these projections a bit. But then the next entrepreneur realized that they're projections were being discounted <laughs> so they had to exaggerate them even more and then they missed those and and now here we are uh guys like i think uh, gary tan at initialized capital says he adds a year and multiplies by 0.1 on your year five revenue so he assumes that whatever you're projecting in year five you'll make 10 percent of in year six uh and i definitely think there is something <laughs> to that but really more to benji's point at the early stage it's so much more about the people and the relationship all of the best pitches that I've been a part of, whether raising money for my fund or investing in other companies, have not used a pitch deck at all. You get on the call and someone says to you, tell me about yourself and what are you building and why? And you just have a conversation where you get to know the essence of the person. And you know, I always ask myself when investing, is this a person whose earnings I want to own a future stake in, regardless of what they're pitching me right now? And are they someone that makes me so excited about what they're doing that I want to quit my job and go work for them instead? And none of, neither of those questions have anything to do with numbers or EBITDA projections. Quite the opposite. Being credible and honest and transparent probably heightens the likelihood of answering yes to both of those questions. So I do appreciate why uh, founders, especially without the network to get a warm introduction, are tempted to put more eye-grabbing numbers and statistics on a page. But ultimately, I think it, it, it compromises your credibility over the long term. And at the early stage, investors are making a bet on you as a founder and as a team and on the size of the opportunity, more so than what your year five operating margin projections are. I agree. But but fictions aren't necessarily just about saying, you know, I'm having this conversation or going to conduct a M&A with this party. It could also just be around, you know, how you actualize your aspirations. Uh, and for me, the greatest fictions and most interesting narrative is often created around, you know, Tam, Sam, Sam, you know, because people talk about, you know, what percentage of what market they're going to have, uh, where they end up saying they're going to reach more humans than have existed on the planet. Um, but at the same time, I've been on the other side of that, you know, I ran uh, poker stars in Asia for years, and the question was always asked, you know, how big can this be? So, you know, I 
my estimates were based on you know two percent of China based on whatever the ARPU was going to be, uh, and of course that was absolutely unachievable. But you still need to have your north star uh, in order to say you know here's where we want to get to. But oftentimes, Jeff, that north star will be if we could achieve just one percent of market share. Look at the numbers and what they would look like. But if you're shooting for one percent, you're never going to get there. So you want that entrepreneur to be shooting higher than that. So again, you know. Uh, uh, a lot of it comes down to the makeup and the determination of the entrepreneur themselves, but but transparency is for sure the name of the game. Yeah, and this bounces back to a point we talked about about half an hour ago, which is you know the Penn board approved that deal based on twenty percent market share targets, also unachievable, uh, but they needed to have you know a target in mind that was ambitious. Right, even even Penn is uh, is pending the truth here. So that's a fairly that. small startup. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, aim for the stars and, and maybe you'll reach the moon, but reaching the moon is pretty okay as well, let's say. Um, People say that no, wait, uh, you know, if, if you aim for the moon or for a star in real life and you miss, you're just cast off into an endless vacuum of space and not likely to just happen <laughs> your way to another celestial body. So I do think that gets thrown around a, a bit too frequently as, as a a motto for this exact mentality. But sorry, I know we have a few minutes left here. And <laughs> well, before we get to up here, the, the last thing I will just say in closing out this topic is I think it also cuts both ways, right? Like we're talking about the quote unquote lies or exaggerated truths that we might hear from entrepreneurs. I'm sure all of the entrepreneurs are listening, some that who have raised capital are saying, hey, hang, hang on a sec. What about some of the blank promises that I heard from investors or exaggerations that I heard from investors in terms of what they can bring to the table to help me in my journey? So I do think it cuts both ways. It is worth mentioning that as we close this topic. Yeah, I agree. And I think courtesy becomes incredibly important there. You know, I spent two years working with Meredith McFerrin at Drive by DraftKings, and I'm now a venture partner at Dreamcraft. Uh, and, you know, the morality with which they approach their obligations towards uh, entrepreneurs is something I've been really impressed by, you know, trying to provide appropriate commentary, doing what they said they would do when they would do it and being respectful with a no that can be quick if necessary. You know, a lot of that, you know, sets a tone for how I engage in my own angel activities, but those are still you know, very minor compared to what the other funds are doing. I should mention, you know, Y Combinator, arguably the most successful startup accelerator program in history. They maintain internally a database for founders of all the investors that have ever invested in other Y Combinator companies, and they're all ranked basically according to the level of courtesy that they exhibit toward investors. And I think the absolute lowest ranking is called something like don't take money from them unless you absolutely need to, all the way up to you know something much more favorable. And that is a you know productized, formalized way of uh, of transmitting reputational concerns, but it also happens in a less formalized way. Uh, and, and so perhaps we even do an uh, a segment on a future episode, the flip side, you know, what are some of the most common uh, empty promises that, that some VCs can make and how can founders go about determining uh, the caliber and level of courtesy uh, that the investor they are working with is, is likely to expend. In closing of this topic, I, I just want to say uh, thank you, Lloyd, for shooting down my mother's favorite mantra uh, that she taught me. So uh, she'll be happy to, to hear that for sure. Uh, so on to, the, on to the last topic of today, guys. Um, uh, as is, uh, as is uh, tradition in, in um, the Vested Interest uh, podcast here, we're going to close today with a deep dive of a specific uh, company, not necessarily a startup today, uh, but we want to talk about GeoComply. Um, obviously, GeoComply has been around for a long time, but it kind of felt like they found their home in, in the United States now with the um, uh, legalization of sports betting uh, there and the ring fencing around the states. 
Um, so I just want to kind of open the topic here. Uh, Lloyd, uh, starting with you, um, what do you feel uh, is the current status of, of GeoComply? A lot of interesting things uh, here. They, they recently uh, acquired OneComply. Um, what does the future look like? Uh, can they grow even further? Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on, one com on um, uh, GeoComply? Yeah, I'll kick this one off because I, I do have to drop in seven minutes, even if you guys are, are please welcome to continue talking. Um, the thing that strikes me most when I step back and, and look at GeoComply is that there were quite a few people in the world who had an eye on the U.S. legalizing PASPA in advance of May 14th, 2018. But I don't know if anybody successfully monetized that viewpoint to the extent that, that David and Anna at GeoComply uh, successfully did. And I think a lot of us would like to think that if we were in the right place at the right time for some tectonic shift in market dynamics, we would know. Uh, you know, exactly how to monetize that. But there are a lot of smart people who could have built businesses in advance of the overturning of PASPA uh, who either did not or, or certainly did not to the extent that David and Anna did. And I think they just deserve so much credit for the hustle and the foresight and the insight and the executional aptitude to really front run a major change in consumer dynamics. There are, are, are very few opportunities most entrepreneurs have in their life uh, to do that. Uh, and now we're at a position just a few years later where we're talking about them as a as a dominant player and what other verticals they might go into. And I, I think there really are two obvious areas of expansion. One is uh, a bit more vertical, the other horizontal. Uh, the former, uh, acquiring one comply, which Benji was an early investor in. So congratulations to him on, on that exit. And anyone who knows Cameron, the founder, will not be surprised he was able to effectuate a successful exit so quickly. He's, he's an absolutely great guy. But you'd imagine that they may be interested, they being GeoComply, and expanding into other aspects of the reg tech stack uh, that would be complementary and bundled into a, a unified offering to an operator who has various needs adjacent to their geolocation needs. Uh, and then the horizontal form of expansion would be into other highly regulated industries that require precise geolocation. Uh, crypto trading, various types of, of financial trading, uh, even you know other industries that are highly regulated and have geolocation uh, requirements, whether federal, regulatory, or otherwise. Those would seem to be the areas of expansion. And you know, given who uh, GeoComply is backed by at this point from an investor perspective, I think they have you know quite a formidable war chest uh, and group of uh, investors and, and, and board members who are, are willing to underwrite some of these M and A transactions that could lead to interesting types of expansion for the company. So uh, hats off, of course, to, to David and Anna for, for front running uh, the repeal of PASPA, arguably to a, a greater level of success than, than anyone else has been able to achieve. And uh, it may just be that they've only scratched the tip of the iceberg and through some combination of horizontal and, and vertical integration, they will continue to expand and 510x the business from here. Yeah, these are a really smart set of founders, and uh, they weren't building in anticipation of PASPA. You know, it precedes that by five years because they were live in New Jersey at the end of 2013 when uh, online casino launched for the first time and online poker. And I worked with them at the time uh, on a project I was involved in. Um, the smartest thing they did when they were starting their business was they put a display monitor of all the pings and all the successful authentications into the DGE office. And I'll tell you the number of times I went to the DGE meetings 
uh, both in 2013, 14, and then again in <laughs> 18 for DraftKings, is every time you walk through their office, somebody is showing you, hey, have you seen this? You know, and they would sit and watch it in real time like it was you know, watching the Oracle foretelling the future. And to a certain extent within our industry, it was. Uh, because they position themselves as, uh, you know, the strongest player across the industry who are providing, you know, access to every single transaction. And it's not just that they're really good on technology and relationship building, which is key. You know, their leading uh, investment into public policy advocacy has ensured, you know, streamlined entry into all of these different markets. And the focus has been North America, evidently, uh, but this can very quickly go global, both as a result of having a great product, but also, you know, I think that public policy advocacy can lead towards, you know, creating inroads uh, with which they are uniquely positioned to fill. Look, we could spend an hour talking on this topic alone and uh, look, echoing the sentiments. There's, these founders are the real deal. There's no question about it. And they may not have a monopoly on the space. There are some competitors emerging, but talk about a first mover advantage to your point, Lloyd, and to yours, Jeff. They got ahead of this back in the you know, 2011, 2012. So their first mover advantage as it pertains to the gaming space will not be overcome. There certainly is an opportunity to be on the bounds of North America and one that I'm sure that their private equity backers are, are, are in tune with and, expand, and looking at. And I think that before they start looking at other verticals that they can go into, whether it be crypto or other, and I'm sure that eventually they can, given the quality of the founders and the, the base that they've built, you know, I think that uh, uh, the RegTech roll-up kind of strategy makes a lot of sense. And I don't think any of us feel, look, I don't have any inside knowledge as to what they're looking to do here. But, you know, the, the acquisition of one comply feels a lot more to me like the tip of the iceberg than it does an endpoint. And look, acquisitions can be a bit of an art. You got to make that first acquisition, get the integration done, start with something. I don't want to call uh, one comply small, but smaller than some of the other opportunities that might be out there. And, and, and prove that you can get good at acquisition and integration, then move on to number two and, you know, whatever other targets are identifying. But I could certainly see a pattern emerging here where we're talking about one comply and their growth via market share expanding into new states and jurisdictions uh, locally and globally, as well as M&A uh, for years to come. Yeah, I think what will be really interesting is to see what comes from their uh, R&D efforts and whether they end up building more products themselves or acquiring, because they could have a centralized repository for ID verification. And that could either be based on a Web3 or crypto layer uh, or, you know, more legacy Web2 tech. Uh, also payments. I mean, you know, if you could have one integration for KYC, geolocation, payments, fraud detection, and, you know, other hygiene elements of gaming and other businesses, I mean, the opportunities there for growth are phenomenal. What about the competitive landscape? Like if you would try to make a case against uh, GeoComply, um, what are the weaknesses or what are potential pitfalls for GeoComply? As you all point out here, it seems like they are in a very strong position uh, at the moment, and, and they have a, a grip of the market, certainly in the, in the US. Um, but if we were to try to make uh, an argument one, one uh, or some bullet there. points one, uh, against... One man down. Yeah, we, one man down. Lloyd, Lloyd has uh, left us here to another meeting, uh, unfortunately, but we are still going strong here, a couple of more minutes at least. Yeah, I, um, I have to jet too, I'm sorry to say. All right, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, yeah, but let's, let's close off on, on that point. Uh, perhaps, uh, Benji, if you want to uh, try to make a case on, on uh, something against uh, GeoCompliant, then we'll, we'll close the There's episode. There's nothing I today. can say against them other than that, from the competitive landscape perspective, 
by osmosis, some competitor or competitors will achieve some piece of market share. Um, and, and competition will be good for GeoComply because it allows them to see what other things are, other, other companies are doing and thinking and allows them to sharpen their, their, their tool set to ensure that they don't get complacent. But, you know, yes, we, we have seen some competitors emerge. We all know who Xpoint is um, and they're going to achieve some market share, um, but it's not based on deficiencies or weaknesses in what GeoComply is doing from what I can see. Yeah, I think the competitive landscape could shift on them very quickly. And it's not your X point, but it's your world pay, uh, you know, very highly capitalized existing service provider to the industry who recognize that, you know, they're giving up so much of their lunch by not getting into geolocation. Good stuff, guys. Uh, it's been an absolutely brilliant hour here. We went over a little bit. Uh, so uh, we have to thank Lloyd from a distance here. But uh, Benji, thank you, uh, like always. And uh, Jeff, thank you for coming on last minute here to give your uh, thoughts as well. Fantastic. Pleasure. Uh, thanks thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Have a good week ahead. I'm going on vacation. I'm off to Ibiza tomorrow. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll watch this episode on the plane. But yeah, thank you so much. Bye, thank you, guys. Bye.